Today's sermon is going to be coming from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you want to turn there with me as I read God's word. It is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you're a visitor and you do not have a Bible or if you just forgot yours, there's a pew in front of you. You just open it up to page 989. I'll be reading verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the elect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is being revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told these things? And you know what is restraining him now is that he may be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing, by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, and with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore, God sends them the strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I'm very uh, glad to be back with you after a wonderful week at the Ocean City Bible Conference in Ocean City, New Jersey. Thanks so much for praying for me and, and also for allowing me and my family to attend that conference. It's a highlight of our year, and uh, we always love the opportunity to spend time with well, first of all, a bunch of people from, from this church, um, but also with uh, hundreds of like-minded brothers and sisters that gather from uh, New York and New Jersey and Massachusetts and North Carolina, even from Texas. Uh, we, I'm coming back to you feeling very refreshed spiritually, uh, even if I am a little bit under the weather. So I, I trust that my uh, sore throat and my coughing fits won't be too much of a distraction for you. We're continuing our study of Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, and after looking last week at some introductory matters, we arrive today at the center of this short epistle. The Apostle Paul gets very quickly to the heart of a matter that this young church is struggling with, and it's a it's a fairly straightforward treatment of that problem. Um, very basically, we can just see that this church is in danger of believing some false teaching uh, regarding the return of Christ. And so Paul refutes that false teaching by reminding them of some of the truths that he has already uh, taught them. So that's pretty straightforward. That's basically what this chapter is all about. Nevertheless, biblical scholars, by, by and large, view this chapter as the most confusing and complicated chapter or portion of scripture out of all of Paul's writings. And part of that has to do with the fact that he doesn't state some things explicitly. Instead, he's, he's content to just remind the Thessalonians of things that, that they already know, things that he has already told them. And uh, you can hear that kind of collective voice of 
biblical scholars and people that study these things just wishing that Paul would have said it one more time just for our sake. A second reason why this, many people view this passage to be so confusing, I think has more to do with our morbid curiosity, if I could put it that way. We want this passage to say more so that we can have more details about, say, the identity of the Antichrist. But I think that that's a distraction. I think that's a distraction. I, I think that there are good reasons to believe that Paul himself doesn't know the identity of this man of lawlessness. Neither is he aware of the, of the date of his appearance, for example, something that we're always trying to figure out. And, and these things are, you know, these kind of details are what modern Christians obsess about. Let's just face it. We want to know name. We want we want to know people and names and times and places and dates. And so we come to a passage like this and we find it just well, quite a bit frustrating. Now, I've had a number of aha moments these past number of months studying these uh, letters to the Thessalonians, especially the sections that deal with eschatology, which is the doctrine of of last things. Even this week, as I'm, uh, you know, understanding afresh just how horrific a figure the Antichrist will be, how arrogant and how blasphemous he will be, not to mention the sheer number of souls that he's going to be responsible for leading into destruction. So I'm being reminded of all of these horrific things. And then you juxtapose that with the fascination that Christians have with this character you know with the abiding academic interest that people have in him the the best-selling series of novels that people read for entertainment purposes well that, it, it occurred to me I think for the first time this week how weird that is it it's weird can we just agree it with that it's it's like um you know, sitting down to watch a Netflix documentary on Charles Manson and, uh, you know, just popping popcorn into your mouth. Something's a little off there. So as we tackle this passage uh, this morning, it's going to be important to keep a, a principle in mind, a principle that I've heard Alistair Begg say many times. He says, the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. That is a very insightful hermeneutical principle. Okay, so if we can keep to those things, then I'm confident that this passage will go from being a head scratcher to us to being uh, actually very great encouragement to us. So I want to show you three main things from our text. Number one, I want to point out to you a dangerous deception. Second main thing I want to show you is a mystery man. And then third, I rejoice to be able to point you to a sovereign savior. There is in this passage, and these are the main things, the plain things, a dangerous deception, a mystery man, and a sovereign savior. Are you ready? Here we go. This is a dangerous deception, and there are many dangers that threaten the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, but this new church in Thessalonica was already experiencing two of the more common of these dangers. And the first is the danger that's posed by persecution. Okay, former friends and family members and neighbors, government officials who hated the gospel were oppressing these Christians. They were, they were putting the screws to them, so to speak, so that they would turn from God back to idols. You know, try to get them to reverse the process that these people found to be so uh, disgusting, so wrong. And so there was all manner of trials and suffering and persecution 
that these early Christians were made to face at the hands of even people that they loved, no doubt. And as we saw last week, and as we've seen in the previous letter, the Thessalonian believers were doing a great job on this front. It was so that it was right for the apostles to thank God for them. And it was right for the apostles to boast about them um, as they interacted with other churches, to hold them up as an example about how to be steadfast and how to, how to um, not just maintain the status quo as far as your faith is concerned, but how to have faith that is actually increasing and a love that, that doesn't just kind of plateau, but that abounds, increases to the point of overflowing. This is, this is what characterizes the Thessalonians in the midst of persecution and affliction that they were suffering. So they're doing great in terms of that first danger. The second perennial danger that is faced by churches is false teaching. False teaching. And one of the things that is clear in our passage is the particular flavor of false teaching that the Thessalonians were in danger of being taken in by. And it's really not too complicated. It's not difficult for us to kind of piece together the problem that Paul must now address. You know, it concerns the topic that has come up quite a bit in his correspondence. Namely, and look with me here at verse 1, it has to do with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. We're talking, friends, once again about that one great day. Call it what you will. The, the day of the Lord, the rapture, the day of Christ Jesus, the second coming. I, I'm not, I don't care what you refer to it as. Paul refers to it as a number of different things. And our study in Thessalonians, I hope, has demonstrated that all of these refer to the same glorious event when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven and when he will descend in power and glory to accomplish two things simultaneously. He's going to come to gather his people to save us finally and fully and to grant us rest and entry into his glorious kingdom. That's one thing that his glorious appearing will accomplish. At the same time, he, he's going to be coming in wrath and in fury to judge and destroy all of his enemies. That's what we're talking about. That is what Paul is going to be talking about. This is the truth that the false teaching comes against, and therefore the Thessalonians are in danger of believing. Paul, as you know, has written about that day extensively, not for, the sake, not for the sake of our curiosity, but for the sake of our comfort. Okay, the point of his teaching is not to fill our heads with information. It's to fill our hearts with hope in the midst of very difficult times. The details that he gives are not for our entertainment. They're for our encouragement. But it seems like somewhere along the line, the Thessalonians had been recipients of what you might call fake news. Fake news. They, they'd been exposed to some form of corrupt media, as verse 2 explains, whether that be a spirit, and that's probably uh, referring to a prophecy, you know, claiming to be given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, or uh, perhaps a spoken word, and maybe this is someone coming to them with a supposed apostolic um, and therefore authoritative word. Or, or perhaps they've received a letter seeming to have come from the apostles. Uh, that, that seems to be the case. And that, that seems to be why at the very end of this letter, Paul is going to um, go to some great lengths to show why this particular letter is authentic. But I think, you can, I think you can probably relate to this, you know, especially if you have a spam filter that's not very strong, okay? You know, we get emails all the time 
claiming to be from Amazon or Norton, the antivirus people. And they look pretty authentic. You know, they've got the company's logo at the top. But, it, but if you were to be deceived by it, it would be very dangerous because these people are not looking to, you know, restore your account or renew your subscription. No, they're, they're not, trust me, folks, these people are not really wanting to give you that refund that you're entitled to. No, they're, these people want to gain access to your bank account and they want to drain it. They want to rob you of your money. And it appears that the, the church in Thessalonica had fallen prey to a scammer who claimed to be the Apostle Paul and who was telling them that that great day that they were looking so forward to was already here and that they, in fact, had missed it. And, and the purpose of that phony word or letter or whatever the purpose of that was to gain access to their trust and then to rob them, not of their money, but of something much more important, which is their hope. And it seems to have had its intended effect. The Thessalonians were rattled by this. And so Paul has to write them, the real Paul has to write them to ask them in verse 2, not to be shaken in mind, not to be alarmed <coughs> if they ever came across an email to the effect that the day of the Lord had come. Let no one deceive you in any way, he writes, because this kind of deception is so dangerous. The danger lies in its potential to rob you of, of your hope, of that hope for the future that's going to motivate you to live patiently and productively and righteously in the present. you, you got to piece this together with all of Paul's logic throughout these letters. This isn't just, you know, some, something that you wish for and hope for at the end of time. No, your hope for the future radically impacts how you're going to live your life tomorrow when you go back to work or school. And so to, to rob a person of that hope, of that future is going to do incredible damage in their present life. Now, we'll move on to our next point in just a minute. But before I do, I want to give you a heads up that dangerous deception is going to remain the theme of this passage. Okay, Before this passage is over, we're going to encounter another group of people who are dangerously deceived. But the danger that that group faces is eternal destruction. And uh, we can move on if you promise me that you understand that this text is not finally about the Antichrist. This, the theme of this passage is the lie versus the truth. And, and which one it is that you love and therefore believe and therefore live in the light of. Okay, so if, if you're good with that, then we can, we can move on, I suppose, to the second main thing, which is a mystery man. A mystery man. As I said earlier, I'm aware that this may be the part of the passage that you're most interested in. I'm not going to scold you for that. Okay, but I do want to calibrate your expectations a little bit. Okay, this is one of the rare places in the Bible. This is especially one of the rare places in Paul's letters where he mentions this person, this figure, this international man of mystery. And so naturally, we're going to be interested in, in everything that, that this text has to tell us. But I, I really want you to understand why Paul brings him up. The why is way more important than the what. The why is way more important than the what. I want you to get that. Notice again what Paul is doing here. He's refuting this phony notion that the day of the Lord has already arrived. And he's reminding these rattled Thessalonians that that's actually impossible 
because some things must take place before the day of the Lord arrives. And, and those things that must take place have not yet taken place. Therefore, here, here's, the, here's the refutation. Here's the conclusion. Look at verse 3. That day will not come. That day has not come. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Okay, that's, the, that's why Paul is getting into this. It's to reassure them that the day of the Lord has not arrived because some things that must happen before the day of the Lord arrives has not happened. And he, um, so there's two things that must precede the great day. And I don't believe that these are to be taken separately. I believe that the rebellion and the revelation of the Antichrist are part of the same um, complex of events, if you, if you want to put it that way. It's very common in Paul's writing, and it's especially common in this particular letter, 2 Thessalonians, for, for Paul to use a pair of expressions to describe one thing. In other words, he, he likes to describe kind of two sides of the same coin. It's a, it's a rhetorical device that he uses that I think is really helpful. But we get into trouble if we try to parse some of these things out too much. The point is that the day of the Lord won't come, it can't come, until the rebellion and the revelation of the man of lawlessness come. Therefore, this, this teaching that the Thessalonians received, purporting to be from Paul, is absolutely false. It's not from Paul. If the Antichrist has not come onto the world stage yet, then the day of the Lord has not yet come. That's, that's the logic. Okay? Now, just a brief aside, since we're talking about timing. If you're new to Grace Baptist Church, you need to understand that we don't ask our members to subscribe to a specific view of the end times. Okay, many churches do make that a test of fellowship, but we're convinced that Christians in good conscience can hold to a variety of views as it relates to the end times, especially as it relates to the, the timing of these events. And we can all maybe believe different specifics about those things, and we can live and serve and love happily side by side. So if you're here, you should never expect to feel pressured to change your eschatology, okay? But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that our views can't be challenged. And I just want to say thank you for your willingness to have your views challenged and put to the test. I know that you are truth people and you want to you want to follow the truth and you want to you want to obey what scripture teaches. So, ready? Thank you for this privilege. Perhaps you are a person who believes like my friend John MacArthur does. He's not actually my friend. I I have never had the privilege of meeting the brother, I just mean that I love him and respect him very much. However, when you read his commentary on this passage, he writes concerning the rebellion and the appearance of the Antichrist that Christians will never experience that day because he holds to this end time schema that has believers raptured out before these horrific events take place. And if you happen to believe that as well, may I graciously challenge you on the timing? In, in verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes, That day will not come until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Which day are you talking about, Paul? Which day? And Paul would say, I already told you. In verse 1, I'm talking about the day of the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him. 
Okay, so you put those two things together, and what do you have? You have the Apostle Paul saying, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the rapture will not come until the Antichrist is revealed first. Is that, is that your understanding? Or is it possible that you might have the timing of those two reversed? I'll just leave it at that. Let's, let's talk about this. Who is the Antichrist? That's the burning question. That, that should be in the Sunday school. But maybe we can, maybe we can talk about that some now. Who, who is the Antichrist? That's what we're dying to find out. And people down through the centuries have been trying to figure this out. And they've been doing all of the fancy math. They've been converting letters to numbers. And they've been trying to get them to add up to 666. And hundreds of candidates have been put forth. Um, Caligula, Nero, Napoleon, Hitler, Mikhail Gorbachev, you know. He, he was suspected not so much because of the number thing, but because he had a really unfortunate birthmark on his forehead. Nearly every American president has been accused of this. In reformed circles, one of the more popular and persistent views has been that the Pope is the Antichrist. For example, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, in the sixth paragraph says, Quote, the Pope of Rome is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. The Second London Baptist Confession, uh, 1689, basically repeats that belief. And both of these confessions, both of, you know, they're, they're referencing pretty strongly our passage today, 2 Thessalonians 2. So here I go again, criticizing some, something that I love and respect very much. These are phenomenal confessions of faith, but they're not inerrant. They're not infallible. And unfortunately, they got this one wrong. And I think it'll be helpful at this point to give you another principle of interpretation. Okay, So add this one to... The beg principle that we've already looked at, which is keeping the main things, the plain things, and the plain things, the main things. There's, a there's another principle, there's a biblical distinction to keep in mind that's commonly referred to as the principle of the already and the not yet. So already slash not yet. And this has to do with a reality that has different dimensions and that can be spoken of in terms of those different dimensions. I think the best way to explain this is just by using an example. So here's an example. The kingdom of God. Now the Bible talks about the kingdom of God a lot in many places. You know, John the Baptist, Jesus. The biblical authors can speak of the kingdom of God as having already there's a key word there, already arrived onto the scene in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But in other places, the Bible refers to the kingdom of God that has not yet come in all of its fullness. It's not fully manifest as it one day will be, even if it has already kind of broken in to the present. Okay, and this is not a contradiction. It's both. It's, it's already and it's not yet. Do you, you get that? Okay, a second example of this is Antichrist. Antichrist has an already, not yet dimension to it. And I think it might be really helpful if we can distinguish these two by using upper and lowercase letters. Okay, so in this chapter that we're dealing with today, the Apostle Paul is telling us about the Antichrist, singular, definite article, capital A. And that Antichrist is not yet 
he he's still future and therefore he's still what we might call a mystery man at the same time paul can say in verse 7 that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work there's that key word already and that's the already aspect i think the apostle john speaks most clearly on this point when he writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that, that Antichrist is coming, in other words, he's not yet, so now many Antichrists have come. That's what's happening already. Antichrists, plural, small a antichrists many people have come down through the through time and in history and they've uh, they've denied christ they they've exalted themselves they've done blasphemous things they've set themselves against god and certainly nero and and hitler and stalin and yes even the pope would qualify on those definitions as small a antichrists in the already. I hope you're sticking with me here. Those small a, there's been many small a antichrists that have already come, John tells us, but the antichrist, capital A, one figure has not yet come. And Paul's writing in this passage about that guy, the capital A Antichrist, the one who makes all of these other candidates look like minor leaguers, you know, JV squad kind of Antichrist. It's, it's fruitless to figure out his identity, hear me, even if Paul knew, which I don't think he did, he wouldn't tell you. But I think the larger point is, you're not going to be able to miss him when he comes. When he, when he appears, you're not going to have to do the math. You're not going to have to get your calculator out and do all the fancy calculations. When the Antichrist is revealed, Christians won't be sitting around wondering, could, could that be the guy, maybe? I wonder if this is who they were talking about. So we're, so we're not given the identity of the capital A Antichrist here. But Paul does give us many identifiers, not the identity, but many identifiers. And let's just look at some of them briefly. First of all, he's described as a man of lawlessness. That is, he's going to be characterized by a total lack of submission to God's law and to God's will. And I think the reason for that becomes clear when we see the next thing, when we see what's said about him in verse 4 which is that he opposes and he exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple and proclaims himself to be God. By the way, here's another aside. I don't think that Paul means to say that the Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, will take up residence in an actual temple. No, I think it's best to take his language metaphorically here since the idea seems to be that the Antichrist is going to aim to displace all of the small g gods in the world, ultimately attempting to displace the big g god. Here we have someone that is wanting to be God, wanting to take the place of God, and therefore that explains his lawlessness. He wants to become a law unto himself. This is an autonomous Antichrist. And when you think about it, let me, let me have you look at this from another perspective. This is exactly what mankind has wanted from the very beginning. This is how our parents were dangerously deceived in the garden. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to take the place of God in determining good and evil. And so they became laws unto themselves, which is to say they became lawless and disobedient. What is the Antichrist but the ultimate fulfillment of that human desire to be like God? He is autonomous Adam 
except on steroids. Okay, he, he's one who will appear at the end of human history to try to su succeed at doing what was attempted and failed at the beginning of human history, namely to become God. And who, it, who is it that in both cases stands behind the man egging him on? Look at verse 9, the devil. It says, the coming of this lawless one is by the activity of Satan. So this Antichrist wants to be a substitute God. In particular, this Antichrist will be a counterfeit savior. Look at how um, Paul goes to great lengths, I think, to, to show how this man, this Antichrist that will come, mimics Jesus. Okay? For starters... Verse 9 speaks of the lawless one's coming. That word there is interesting because that word in the original is the, the word parousia. And that's the same word that the biblical writers often use to describe Jesus' second coming, his appearing. In fact, it's the same word at the end of verse 8 and at the beginning of verse 9, except one's in reference to Christ's coming and one's in reference to the Antichrist coming. And the, the impression that you're left with is that the Antichrist is, is, a, is a counterfeit Jesus. And not only that, but the Antichrist ministry, if you can put, use that word, is marked by power and false signs and deception. That, that means that there's going to be miraculous things that he will be capable of doing which is going to, in some ways, mimic the signs and the wonders that attended the ministry of Jesus and authenticated his ministry. Just like Pharaoh's magicians are, are able, in some cases, to replicate the, the miracles that Moses performed. Not only that, but the Antichrist will attract followers. He will have disciples as well. In fact, one gets the impression that due to his charisma and uh, his power, a multitude, a, a vast number of people are going to be taken in and convinced by his wicked deception and follow after him. That's, in many ways, it's a, it's a model of discipleship. Of course, when you have a demonic doppelganger setting himself against Christ, what, what you've got there now is a, is a setup for a contest, which leads us to wonder what the outcome will be. And thankfully, this whole passage is peppered with encouragement about what the outcome will be. And this brings us to the third thing, the, the third and last main thing that we see in the text. And I thank uh, Rob Wilson, who led worship this morning and set us up perfectly to consider our sovereign Savior. I was introduced to the idea of doppelgangers when I was but a wee lad, even though I didn't know that term at the time. But I was, I was pretty able, I think, to spot fakes and pretenders pretty, pretty easily. For example, in season five of my uh, favorite TV show, The Dukes of Hazard, I guess they were having like contract disputes. Again, I didn't know that at the time, but it seems pretty obvious to me now. Well, I, I suppose that as a sort of power move, they went ahead with production, except to make it work, they, in, they, they wrote Bo and Luke Duke out of the script and then they wrote into the script two previously unmentioned cousins called Coy and Vance. And the producers probably congratulated themselves at what an easy fix this was. They were like, there, fixed. You know, I just had to erase a couple of things. Coy and Vance, as a result, were, were basically identical looking to Bo and Luke. Uh, they drove the same way. You know, they got in the same kind of hijinks, and all of them were, you know, probably 
too close with their, their cousin Daisy. It was probably unhealthy. So there was all those similarities, but we, the viewers, were not fooled. We were all like, what is this trash? I mean, it was all trash, let's be honest, but this was next level trash. We're like, what? What are you trying to pull on us? And eventually, Bo and Luke must have negotiated a contract because they came back and those fakes were dropped into the dumpster of television history, never to be heard from again, much to everyone's relief. Now, the Apostle Paul wants to encourage us with the truth that the Antichrist shares the same not the same fate, a far worse fate. And all of this because we have a sovereign savior. You know, if before the people of God get all freaked out about the appearance of the Antichrist, we need to be reminded of our, of our vigilante Christ. Now, ar around these parts, I, I suppose you've figured out, we talk an awful lot about the sovereignty of God and that's mainly because the Bible talks an awful lot about the sovereignty of God. And sovereignty means, simply put, that God is God. That he rules and he governs and he ordains and he controls all things. All things. His sovereignty is absolute. By which we mean that it extends into every area imaginable. Okay, there, there's a Sunday school song that speaks to his, his sovereignty. He, we, sing, we sing, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. It's a great song. It's a kid's song. So we do well to sing of his sovereignty extending even to the, the smallest thing. You know, so we sing, he's got the little bitty baby in his hands. And that's great. His sovereignty extending even to the smallest but on the basis of our passage today, I want to propose another verse to that song to express God's sovereignty reaching even to the greatest, even to the most evil. We could just as well sing, he's got the antichrist in his hands. I, I won't ask you to join me, but I think that's a good, I think that's a good verse. He's got, he's even got the antichrist in his hands. And if you don't believe me, let me prove it. Let me show you two aspects of our Savior's sovereignty over this end time evil. And let me show it to you in terms of the already and the not yet. What is God doing already? Look at verses six and seven. And the key word there for you is now. What is happening now as it pertains to Satan? And as it pertains to the man of lawlessness, answer, he's being restrained. Now, this is one of the places in the commentaries when you read the scholars on this. There are pages and pages dedicated to figuring out what or who is doing the restraining. And uh, much to commentators' chagrin, Paul doesn't explicitly say, he doesn't say because he says that the Thessalonians already know. And this is, this is the point where they say, oh, why, Paul, why couldn't you have just said it for us, for our sake? But I don't necessarily think that when Paul says, you know, to the Thessalonians, that he's saying that because he's already told them. I, I think it could just as well be that they know because it's obvious. It's obvious. Ultimately, the one responsible for restraining the Antichrist from, from appearing is our sovereign God, who is Lord of history. And he's not going to let him onto the world stage until his proper time. And God alone knows when that proper time is. Martin Luther famously said about the devil that he is God's devil. Yeah, he's a pit bull, but he's on a leash and he's being held back by the real master. Now look at the not yet aspect. What will happen then? When in the future this restraint is taken away and Satan is allowed to, you know, install his puppet 
the Antichrist, what will happen then? And, and by the way, one gets the very strong impression that this is going to happen very quickly. Look at verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. It's not even a contest, brothers and sisters. It's a, it's a matter of Jesus going like this. <laughs> Sorry about that, Marius. Actually, Paul is alluding to Isaiah chapter 11, which is a wonderful prophecy about the Messiah. It speaks about the wisdom and the power of this shoot that is going to spring up from the stump of Jesse, who's faithful and righteous, who is both a savior and a judge. And more than likely, the, you know, the idea expresses it poetically. It says breath, but I think what it really means is that Christ speaks a mere word and the Antichrist and the devil are destroyed. Again, Martin Luther expresses it best when he writes, and we sing, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Do you see also that this guy, this man of lawlessness, is called right away in the text a son of perdition? That, that's language that strongly speaks to the sovereignty of, of God, which means that this guy is, is destined right from the very beginning, destined to die and to be destroyed. The, this, this Antichrist is, is going to do nothing apart from the full sovereignty of God. And then I also want you to see it's something quite sobering, that God is sovereign to judge the multitude who will believe the lie, who have followed the Antichrist, who have worshipped the beast. Again, there's, there is already not yet aspects to this. The, the not yet part is that they will in the future, be thrown into the lake of fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. But already, even now, as verse 10 says, they're perishing. They're perishing. Already, even now, they are experiencing the judgment of a sovereign God who is sending them a strong delusion with the result that they believe the lie. And what they, they are taken in by what is false. And if that sounds off to you, if that sounds unfair to you, if that sounds to you that God is somehow robotically forcing them against their will, in case you're wondering about the relationship between sovereignty and human responsibility and a, and a person's free will, if you insist on using that term, then you, you need to understand that the people that we're talking about here are people that in their own responsibility and will, have not believed the truth. We're talking about people whose hearts took pleasure in unrighteousness. God's judgment, his ultimate condemnation, is simply to confirm them in the choice that they have freely made. They've made the choice in their hearts to hate the truth and to delight in the lie. Even still, God is sovereign. While this sermon has been heavy on uh, teaching, I appreciate you sticking with me. It's been light on application. And much of that has to do with the place that I chose to break up this passage. And it's not, it's not really good. It's unnatural for me not to include verses 13 to 17 because that's, that's all the practical implications of what we've talked about. But it's so good that I wanted to deal with it all separately. So you'll need to come back next week. That's, that's what I mean by that, okay? This is basically going to be a continuation. 
Um, and that's where we'll get lots of practical application. But you can at least be encouraged as you eagerly await the day of Christ's appearing. First of all, be encouraged because you haven't missed it. It will certainly come, but not before the rebellion and not before the revelation of the Antichrist. But even at that, be encouraged because he, the Antichrist, the, the most fearsome mere mortal ever to walk the, the planet is not going to get very far. Our, our sovereign savior is going to kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the glorious appearance of his coming. And, and think about that, friends, because you can actually work backwards from that and squeeze a lot of encouragement for your soul out of it. You, you can work back from the not yet to the already. Consider, can, you know, just work an argument from the greater to the lesser. Understand that the Antichrist who is coming is, he's capital A, okay? He, he makes Nero look like a zero. He, he makes Stalin look like a soy boy, okay? And the point is, if our Lord Jesus Christ can defeat the greatest evil so easily, how much less of a threat is that evil that you currently face? Whether from your neighbor or your coworker or your senator or your school board, our, our sovereign savior makes rinky-dink Middle Eastern governments look like a bunch of four-year-olds playing in the sandbox. And the point is that they will all be brought to nothing. One little word shall fell them. And as for us, brothers and sisters, be encouraged. He will hold us fast. Amen? Amen. Amen.